Sometimes our commander-in-chief, ideally upholder of the law, fails to inspire us. Take the 1970s. Well, I'm not a crook. Or the 90s. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And now the 21st century. I'm an extremely stable genius. You're about to hear two attorneys make sense out of a legal system some say is a train wreck. Here are Royal Oaks and Connor Oaks. This is Too Many Lawyers. Welcome to Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. And Connor, uh, gosh, what a week. A Mars rover. Um, Perseverance. Perseverance. Lands on the surface of Mars. First in years and years. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to talk about that. Big international um, collaboration. So cool. We're going to talk about Rush Limbaugh, uh, the, the passing of uh, a radio icon. That's certainly true. Of course we're going to talk about Ted Cruz, the trouble he is in <laughs> the, over well, this the Mexico week is situation. Cruz-a-palooza. Every single segment will be touched upon yeah, by, by Cruz's amazing... Uh, success in going viral. Great he's, job, Cruz. Teach me how to go viral like you do. He's dispelling the notion that there's no such thing as bad publicity. <laughs> and uh, we're going to talk about an op-ed piece in the New York Times involving uh, the federal death penalty uh, case. And the, it just made me furious, this article. Wow. I'm, I'm at the so end of the glad podcast. that you're finally yeah. on board. I am going to explain what made me furious Perfect. about this Can't wait. op-ed piece Can't about wait. The federal death penalty. Love it. So let's start with the Mars Perseverance deal. Pretty exciting. I mean, having lived through the the uh, moon landing in 1969, uh, you know, it was. It's these are, are spectacular events. It, it brings the whole nation together. And of course, yeah. uh, we're pretty close uh, here in uh, SoCal to La Cañada Flintridge's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And so it was exciting to see a bunch of local folks celebrating. Yeah, and so, it's not just a national thing. It brings national uh, uh, pride and all the rest. But this is an international project that with the European uh, space program. Um, and uh, several Asian countries contributed to this one. The one standout, of course, is China has its own program, and they also have they're currently orbiting Mars, and they're going to land soon. But we won the race to to to, to the twenty twenty one lander. Who cares? Uh, but yeah, they have a separate program and their own stuff going on. But other than other than China being the big standout, this might as well be the whole world. This is everybody with a major space program getting together to work on this, and it's an incredible uh, collaboration to watch. And it was so dramatic and exciting to, yeah. to see the, the countdown. Our and family the text message thread was just going crazy. Yeah, and the description by the the lady who was the announcer about the, the speed, the incredible speed as mm-hmm. they're going through space, and then it slows down, and then the parachute launch, and mm-hmm. then it, it, it slows those down to like a, a meter per second. Mm-hmm. From it had been twenty thousand uh, meters per second, That's something incredible. crazy like that. So, as a progressive, though, Con, oh yeah, does it trouble you a little bit that some people it go to bed so, hungry? It is so funny. And how yeah. how can you really be excited about this <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. when we could do so much good with the billions of dollars right here on planet Earth? I am so glad you asked, and it's actually a great, a huge coincidence. A uh, last night uh, after uh, the. Thursday, Perseverance Touchdown. Then on Saturday, I watched episode three of a, a show uh, called Lovecraft Country that actually came out, I think, in 2019. It's not a brand new. It might have been 2020. It was not a new show, but it's about racism, uh, but through the lens of Lovecraftian Cthulhu style, insane, bizarre horror. So it's a horror show where the protagonists are black people in the 1900s um, in the Ooh, oh, way back of, in the 1900s? Right, exactly. Oh like this, the post-World War II, uh, you know, Warren Court era. The Cold uh, War. Post, yeah, Cold War era, post uh, the, the, the Brown versus Board of Education. Um, but 
before the government started um, enforcing uh, integration schools or potentially, you know, right afterwards. It's right in, in, in the civil rights era when there's this enormous white backlash against civil rights. You know, they're moving into white neighborhoods and, and uh, facing uh, domestic terrorism as a result. Um, and all the, the Lovecraftian horror creatures are manifestations of racism, the representations of racism. So they're they're like, oh, my gosh, there's this scary monster and no one believes me that I am affected by it. And there's whole... You're told you're crazy if uh, you're affected by it, but you and the people who experience it all know, yes, there are really monsters lurking in the dark. So it's a it's a great show if you're into Lovecraftian horror um, and you know history, a, a, a big fan. Episode three is called Whitey on the Moon, and it includes a rendition of the famous uh, you know, mid-century civil rights song, um, either right before we landed on the moon or right after, I'm not sure. Um, but it's a guy singing about how his sister got bit by a rat yesterday and she's swelling up terribly and they're worried about her, but Whitey's on the moon and, you know, we're all suffering here, but Whitey's on the moon over so and over again. is so that a legitimate position in your view? It absolutely is a legitimate position to take to say we are yeah, But if you were president, would you say, I'm going to sign an executive order taking all the NASA money and giving it uh, to poor people so they won't be hungry? Right. No. But it is a good opportunity for us to examine what are the things that we're prioritizing and saying, OK, we value Mars exploration because it brings huge benefits to society X, Y and Z advances in technology. It inspires young people to move into STEM. It does all these other things. But we can also look at something else that we could do for way less money that would make our society better and stronger and happier and healthier uh, and thus, we should also do that. And so to say, you know, well, we should we should take the money from Mars missions and give it directly to civil rights stuff is, of course, a narrow minded view of saying, well, there's only eight dollars to, to to pass around and seven point eight of them go to the military, obviously. And then point oh oh one of them go to NASA and point oh 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 one of them go to civil rights. So let's take the point oh oh one from NASA and give it to civil rights and that'll solve all our problems. No, of course, that doesn't solve all our problems. And that's not the point of the song. The Problem. The point of the song and the episode and everything else is we aren't even paying attention to that. And we are all sort of cheering from the rooftops about how great we're doing as a society when you're right, there are people going hungry or freezing in Texas. And so that, you know, we, we have to reconcile uh, that and, and, and understand the, the good and the bad. But one can walk and chew gum at the same time, right? One can say our society needs work and we can also say our country is great. Well, you can't really walk though if you're if you're super hungry. You can you can barely stand. That's absolutely true. Yes. Um, let's talk Rush Limbaugh. Uh, let's. The death of Rush Limbaugh triggered a lot of conversation, but included well conversation or cheering because it uh, could be either one. Well, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. The New York Times, shockingly, surprisingly, today had some articles uh, questioning whether people should be cheering. But but before we get to that, I, I want to talk about kind of a, a rather arcane a remnant of American political and broadcasting history, and that's the fairness doctrine. It mm. was said that Rush came along because the fairness doctrine was abolished in 1987 during the Reagan presidency. Mm -hmm. His career really began the as very a talk show it, host yeah. in 98, and then he was Within a couple of years, he was nationally syndicated uh, out of New York and mm -hmm, off to the races. Mm -hmm. So Peggy Noonan, in her Wall Street Journal column on Saturday, suggested, among other things, that the fairness doctrine should not have been abolished because as a result 
of it being abolished, polarization has been allowed to arise. And I, I kind of disagree. First, though, we need to clear up some lingo because it's it's not self-evident to everybody. The fairness no. doctrine is not the equal time doctrine. I've seen this at all over social media, people talking about them as though they're interchangeable when yeah. they're not. So the equal time doctrine has to do specifically with elections and candidates. And yep. when you get fairly close to elections and some uh, plutocrat owner of a uh, of a TV or radio station. Says, Roger oh, Ailes. I, yeah. I, I love candidate X. I'm going to have him on 12, 20 hours a day. Right. And I'm not going to give any time to the other folks who are running against candidate X, that's a violation of the equal time doctrine, which says you essentially have to, as to the major candidates, not, you know, all 47 of them, right? but as to the major ones, they have to literally be given equal time on radio and television and so on. That's different from the fairness doctrine. The fairness doctrine was, said something different. It said holders of broadcast licenses have to give time to important issues and must include opposing issues. You don't need equal time for opposing issues. Translation a bunch of stations, radio and TV stations in the 50s, 60s, uh, 70s, put on public affairs shows that, frankly, nobody watched. Yeah, these are famous for being boring. No one watched them. 5 a.m. Yeah, exactly. And it's a panel of people uh, in suits and glasses looking like nerds uh, talking about stuff in sort of vague, general terms. It you can't doesn't blame mean that, them. If they have poor eyesight, kind of, you've got to wear glasses. I'm, we're both wearing glasses right now. Spoilers to the listeners uh, who had <laughs> imagined us looking like, you know, Superman. We're actually Clark Kent. I'm very sorry. So here's my problem. Uh, Big Brother in Washington, holder of your FCC. Big License, decided whether or not to renew your license based yeah. on whether you were a good boy yeah. when it came to putting out both sides of the issues. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering, why shouldn't the general public decide what goes on the air by their ratings, by their patronage of sponsors? Why should some politicians with their own personal agenda and wanting to make their contributors happy, why should they decide what we say, I mean, if you if you want to go back to the fairness doctrine, Peggy Noonan, why not go all the way? Why not say, well, of the three hours of prime time every Monday through Friday evening, 8 to 11 p.m., one hour has to be devoted to public interest television. Yeah. You know, institution uh, talking about sexism and getting rid of systemic racism and so on. Isn't that a more important than letting people see young Sheldon for one of the hours in, in this uh, prime time period? It's true. And I think the answer is no, the government should not be telling us what to watch. Watch. The original excuse for imposing restrictions on broadcast licenses was scarcity. There are only so many megahertz uh, uh, spots right. on the AM band, mm -hmm. the, and and so people said, "Well, you know, we've got to we've got to have the government control it. The government owns the airwaves. The airwaves are not owned by the government. Yeah, the airwaves. And by like '87, any we kind of had figured that out that scarcity yeah. was no longer a driving principle. And I think that's the the that's the principled argument for dropping that. I, and I think that that that's what it a lot of people appeal to. I think the more likely thing, that the reason that we appeal to it is because, as you pointed out, uh, government's fallible, politicians are fallible, and I think there was a lot of money uh, to be made in very partisan news and opinion sources that people started pushing uh, in the 80s that were then fantastically successful at, at appealing directly to people's emotions and hearts. Uh, and Rush Limbaugh is probably the greatest example of that. He was what top five most influential influential public intellectuals, whatever that means, mm -hmm. in American life for the end of the 80s, the all of the 90s, and into the beginning of the 2000s. I probably, I, I was pretty young, so I, I don't remember exactly when he sort of began to fade in popularity. But I mean, until he died, he was still on the air, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, he went from a high of about two, uh, 20 million people a week uh, on some 600 stations to in the last maybe third or quarter of his career, 
only 15 million a right. week, only 400 stations. He was right. still an enormous success. Yeah. And, and as you say, he was totally influential. When we come back, we're going to talk about whether we should be dancing on Rush Limbaugh's grave. But first, Connor's going to tell you how to rate and subscribe to Too Many Lawyers. Yeah, check us out on whatever podcast platform you use, or maybe even another podcast platform you don't use, just to help us out. Who knows? And leave us a rating or a comment uh, and subscribe to us. If you get our episode because somebody shared it uh, or you just found us randomly, uh, that's great. But make sure to hit subscribe so you hear us every week. We're here every single week talking about uh, who's grave to dance on, uh, and it's a great time. We'll be right back on Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. So the uh, New York Times, Connor, had a couple of pieces uh, today, uh, Sunday, February 21, about whether people should be dancing on Rush Limbaugh's grave. And a liberal columnist, Frank Bruni, uh, started out, he said, not proud of this, a friend wrote to me in a text message mere minutes after the news broke on Wednesday, but feeling really good about Rush Limbaugh dying. Frank Bruni says, I understood. I, I myself wasn't mourning the passing of a man who had been so contemptuous of people who didn't share his political views, so prone to cruel mockery, so profoundly prejudiced, so recklessly divisive. But there were comments like, rest in piss. Um, I personally, Connor, went to uh, the Wikipedia page about Rush Limbaugh within minutes after the news broke. And the first thing I saw was a really large photograph of the male organ. Wow, that's pretty thought, generous of this them. This is really inappropriate. And so I went out and I went back into it a minute later. What do you know? It was a different picture of a different <laughs> male organ. <laughs> back to and I thought back. to myself, what has happened is this, this news has hit people like a ton of bricks mm -hmm. and the Wikipedia censors were totally overwhelmed because personally, I don't know about you, I have never gone to a Wikipedia page, yeah. on, you know, Jennifer Aniston or Benjamin Franklin or whatever, and seen anything inappropriate or, yeah. you know, some weird editing by some wacko you know, 500-pound guy uh, sitting uh, sitting in his basement. So, I mean, uh, th this this really brought out at the worst in people. So here's what Frank Bruni says. He, he says, the headline, Rush Limbaugh dies at 70. This is out of the New York Times obituary. Turn talk radio into a right-wing attack machine. Bruni said, that nails his significance and signals his destructiveness without hurling slurs. Below, below those words in a subhead came these. With a following of 15 million and a divisive style of mockery, grievance, and denigrating language, he was a force in reshaping American conservatism. Again, Frank Bruni, Bruni says, no sugarcoating Limbaugh's behavior, no hedging about his tactics, but also no taunting, no seething, no celebrating. The paragraphs that followed that subhead also followed suit. Uh, I kind of agree with Frank Bruni. D do you think it was irresponsible for, for people to, to come out <clears throat> with, you know, really emotional, angry, you know, setting aside mm. the uh, the photographs that, yeah. that I spotted in terms of a reaction to this guy's No, death? I don't. I think that the, the take from Twitter, um, the uh, hashtag trending rest in piss. I think one should strive to live one's life as a as a as one wisely said uh, on Twitter after this happened. One should strive to live one's life in such a way that rest and piss does not trend when you die. Rush Limbaugh made himself a public intellectual. He availed himself of the airwaves and of the public discourse. And he said, this is who I am. This is what I believe. This is how I think we should change the world uh, in my direction. And everybody gets to react to that and say, uh, no, you're wrong and you're a bad person for thinking what you think and saying what you say. This is a guy 
who played a, a gay anthem, Dionne Warwick, a uh, famous Dionne Warwick song, and read off all the names of the people who died of AIDS that day and laughing, hitting the applause button and canned laughter. This is a guy I mean, who and you can go on and on. He, in, okay. in 30 or 40 years, you can go on and on with a lot of examples of right. inappropriate things sure. that he said. But what about Bruni's point? Let me read one more part of his, his op-ed. He said, our roughness certainly isn't going to lead anyone to the light. It may well encourage its targets to hunker down in their resentment. Yeah. Double down on their rage and stray less frequently onto terrain where they might mingle with people who hold at least slightly divergent yeah, views. I, I hear Our that. crudeness only perpetuates a kind of discourse that tracks too closely with Twitter all spleen, no soul. The Times obituary didn't grant Limbaugh to absolution, nor am I recommending that. I think we should speak honestly of the dead, and in many cases that means speaking ill. But the pitch of that ill speak needn't be screechy. The manner of it needn't be savage. It has more credibility, and I think more impact, yeah. when it's neither of those things, and we preserve some crucial measure of civility and grace. I think that there is a line over which one could go theoretically. I don't think the discourse about Rush Limbaugh as a whole, like the the average or even the the average of the top, the worst 10% of people talking about him got anywhere near the line that you could say, look, this is too far. It didn't touch on uh, you know, his family or his kids or whatever. It didn't start talking about anybody who listened to him was evil or bad. They were talking about this guy specifically. And in fact, I am of the mind that the only way to make something like racism or homophobia uh, extinct is to make it socially unacceptable. And you cannot allow people to say, well, look, we're just, we're just, you know, evil. We're just racist. We're just homophobic. We're just on the wrong side of things. And you can't criticize us with bad words, ostracize us, hashtag cancel culture us just because we have bad ideas. The answer is yes, you can. And the only way to stop racism from being socially acceptable is to make it socially unacceptable. The way you make something socially unacceptable is you shame the, the proponents of it. You say, shame on you for saying that black people aren't, aren't equal to white people. Shame on you for saying gay people are morally wrong or bad. Shame for doing that. And the way that you say that is when somebody makes millions of dollars hawking hate for decades in American life and having hopefully moved past it. Now, America looks back on a guy who harmed us, who dragged us backwards towards Jim Crow and away from the light of the future and the, the bend of, you know, the arc of, of history bending towards justice, who impeded that, who bent the arc of history the wrong direction for decades. The way that we make sure that everyone knows that we have moved on from that is we shame him. And he deserves it. And we're going to put you down as a critic of Frank Bruni of the New York yeah, Times on the Rush Limbaugh issue. So speaking of shaming and social ostracism and so on. Love it, love it, love let's it. Let's talk about Ted Cruz. Oh, my God. So uh, <laughs> Ted Cruz, uh, senator from Texas, where the- If you the, don't know. The brunt of senator this, this horrible cold snap. And where a lot of people are suffering. Yeah. Uh, he and his family head down to sunny Mexico for a little vacation to to get away from this stuff. And boy, yeah. was there a negative reaction. And he's tried to explain. And everybody's following him through the airport as he comes back. Yeah. I mean, he had a terrible, terrible. Um, I mean, well, first of all, I don't know how many people he's got sort of on his staff who monitor his calendar and people with, who are. Uh, you know, trusted, probably a lot of people. Yeah, who are trusted enough 
to to speak truth to power and talk to a United States senator and say, hey, I got some advice for you. I think you shouldn't do what you're doing, or I think you should change the way that you're doing it or whatever else. But there are a lot of people around Senator Ted Cruz, a guy who's just a random dude in Texas sitting in his house, freezing cold, saying, you know what? We're rich. Let's go stay at the Ritz-Carlton in Cancun while all this gets sorted out. It'll be fine. And when your kids, who are his daughters, his explanation, by the way, his apology explanation for what happened is he's, mm-hmm. it, you know, my daughters just really wanted to go uh, to this Ritz-Carlton in Cancun that we've been to before. Um, and they really wanted to go. And oh, what was I going to, I was just trying to be a good dad. Okay. They're 10 and 12 years old. Being a good dad sometimes in, invo- involves <laughs> telling your kids, I'm so sorry I can't come with you to this resort in Cancun. Daddy's got to work. Or maybe, I don't know, we're not going to go to the Cancun resort. But let's say being a good dad involves getting his kids out of this situation. Uh, odd, he had tweeted to his constituents in Texas, stay at home, everybody, that you'll be safe at home. You know, let's not. The implication is we can't all be running off to somewhere safe because if everyone did it, we, there would be traffic jams on the road in the middle of a blizzard and people would die. Oh, but it's OK for Ted. So they call Ted and his staff call the uh, police department um, where the airport is located and they say, hey, Senator Ted Cruz is going to come on in. Can you help him out? Escort him through the airport. Um, is that a good use of Texas's police resources at the moment? Texas police are not dealing with a lot of burglars. Folks are too cold to commit crimes, I think. Yeah, not a lot of uh, muggings happening right now. Not a lot of people breaking and entering because everybody's at home because it's a blizzard and a pandemic. I think they could be out there moving water bottles around and, and helping out uh, in, in people who are in dire straits or just with their families, you know. But instead, Ted Cruz needed an, air, uh, an escort through the airport, uh, which, of course, has power uh, and is doing just fine and is not uh, experiencing so any unrest. So how do you explain the tone-deaf response by politicians to situations. And let's go over a few of the examples. A few years ago, Chris Christie, Christie, uh, his state was uh, shut down because of some budget thing, I believe. So the state beaches are closed. So what does he do? He and his family, they go to an empty beach, and man, they are sunning themselves. And of course, the pictures of, you could actually see him from the uh, International Space Station. You could see Ted Cruz, uh, excuse me, Chris Christie on the beach. So what was he thinking? Did he not realize? Then we, of course, go to Governor Newsom, who says to everybody, California's governor, now y'all don't don't have any gatherings. You know, if you're going to gather, make sure it's outside and you're wearing your masks. So he goes to the French Laundry Restaurant, runs up the $12,000 dollar wine tab eats indoors with a bunch of people who are mm-hmm. yucking mm-hmm. it up and, and laughing uproariously sans masks right and i mean i this that could be the thing that that knocks him out of possible. office through, yeah, through the uh, i think the, the recall the, and the final example is mayor de blasio do not go to uh Times square on new year's eve to watch the ball drop because you know it's really uh dangerous and nobody's gonna gonna be there he shows up with his wife and five or six or ten other people that are you know insiders and they're dancing he and his wife are dancing to the you know old lang syne as the ball drops and so on and he has taken a huge raft of crap over that so how is it these politicians that are smart enough to get into these highfalutin offices don't realize how this comes across in my mind the answer is they're getting away with a lot more than we know about 
And when it comes out, we think, how could they think they got a, they could ever get away with this? And the answer in their mind is, I get away with stuff all the time. I got away with 10 things like that are this offensive last week. I go to Cancun whenever I want. I'm Ted Cruz, damn it. I do whatever, you know, whatever pops into my head because I'm a, an overgrown man child and power corrupts absolutely. These <laughs> are people who, I think that's the answer is power corrupts absolutely. They get away with a lot more than we know. And who, what, you know, what is pol- uh, politics attract? Not every politician's bad, but politics attracts megalomaniacs, sociopaths, and frankly, people with bad judgment. And it also puts people under a microscope. We all have failings. We all make mistakes. And when, you know, a politician makes a mistake, it's like, how could he possibly have done this? Well, you know, how could I have eaten two entire boxes of, of uh, Samoas back to back last <laughs> night? But, but I did. Uh, right, and then me, I felt terrible. And you know what? I've suffered the consequences play, for it. And so should Ted Cruz. Let me play devil's advocate okay. and, and defend a poor Ted. Poor Ted. Uh, let's assume poor he was, he's was he been working 18 hours a day as senator from, from the sure state has. of Texas to, to so, somehow solve this, this Undermine horrible, democracy. horrible, horrible weather. Yeah. What if he dreamed up a bill and, and pushed it through the Senate that would be just a fabulous solution to this? Uh, does he not deserve to take a vacation? Take a breather. I mean, if he comes up with a cure for smallpox, right? Should he say, "Well, I'm going to expose myself to smallpox, so I'll be just like everybody else"? Okay, why not just reward himself yeah. with with a little vacation in Mexico sure. for curing so, smallpox? I think I think this is I think that's a pretty realistic <laughs> analogy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I think there is actually there is a debate to be had here, right? Because the bad right wing takes on Twitter after this happened were things like, "Well, Ted, what do you expect Ted Cruz to be out there with a flamethrower de-icing the natural <laughs> gas lines?" Or, uh, "Well, Ted Cruz Leonardo removed- DiCaprio's flamethrower from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I hope. Yeah. Oh, Ted Cruz removed himself from a disaster area, uh, thus using fewer resources. So people, you know, that's the best thing he could have done is so that nobody, there's less power being used, blah, blah, blah. Okay. No, that is the, under the assumption that that like, we're talking about a random private citizen who's choosing to remove himself. Like, okay, after Katrina, people are running from the rising water. There's no advantage to the senator uh, that, you know, wading through uh, the senator for uh, Louisiana, uh, Louis, New Orleans is in Louisiana, right? Ooh, okay, yeah. good. <laughs> senator All from day Louisiana. Long. <laughs> I was like, Alabama, Louisiana. Okay. The senator from Louisiana, you know. That question doggy- you posed to me was big easy. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> the senator pat, dog paddling through the rising floodwaters uh, to people's houses. <laughs> Leave it to the professionals. You're right. You don't have to be doing that specific thing to help people. But the senator... For, from Texas, wields enormous political power and can allow people and enable people to cut through red tape. He is a, a, a vessel for his constituents. He's a contact point for millions of people that he represents. And as, as well, millions of people are represented by intermediary political figures who can now turn around, call the senator and say, hi, you know, I need my constituents in this local area need help. And Ted Cruz has enormous amounts of power through actual political processes to get things done because he knows everybody and he can cut through the red tape. In addition, he could also think outside the box and actually help his constituents in lots of ways, in ways like, I don't know, Beto O'Rourke is currently out there tweeting up a storm, making great press for himself about the million and a half, you know, check-in calls that they made. He made to seniors across Texas asking, do you need something? Are you OK? You know, can can we come help you? Uh, and all this other stuff that's getting up amazing press for him and making Ted Cruz look like an idiot and all the the right wing folks out there who are defending Ted by saying, well, there's nothing Ted could have done. He's a random individual. Look bad because the truth is, of course, everyone knows 
you don't even have to be the, the senator from Texas. You can be AOC and raise more than $3 million for Texas relief and be flying to Texas, you know, a week uh, in the process. She's not even from Texas. She's going to Texas to fix this. So the Democrats are making hay out of this. Progressives are making hay out of this, saying we actually have lots of things to do. And we're just leading by example, showing you what we could have been doing to help the people of Texas that Ted Cruz was not doing. So I think that the 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 back the you know the backlash of the of right wing media where they tried to defend Ted on this it was just insane it was just totally nuts and of course Don Jr. who stepped in and made that great video where he he sort of begrudgingly said oh yeah I guess I wouldn't defend what Ted Cruz did blah 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 and then tweeted afterwards the Democrat governor of Texas is falling down it's a, there hasn't been a Democratic governor of Texas in 39 years. I wonder if they're going to abandon Don Jr. from Twitter as well. Uh, so can only hope. when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about an op-ed piece in the New York Times on the federal death penalty. I'm fired up. I'm fired I, up. I'm I have very strong opinions. Stick with us yeah. on Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oak. I'm still Connor Oak. So the New York Times ran an op-ed piece the other day, Connor, uh, by some person who mm-hmm. really, really mm-hmm. hates the uh, federal death mm-hmm. penalty. Mm-hmm. And this person gave all the arguments. All right, I'm ready to go. Go to the mat. Let's gave the all mat. the arguments about the federal death penalty. Mm-hmm. I don't want to talk about the death penalty. Sorry? I want to talk about the subheading of the article. You know how really? uh, the uh, editorial page folks, they, they try to capture the key thought in an op-ed piece and right. put it in big, bold letters. And, and here's what the it's like sub- a pop-out or pull-out or something. Yeah. Yeah, I can't remember yeah. Yeah. Here's what the subtitle said about the federal death penalty. And this reflected the, the opinion of the author, of course. Okay. Its flaws are inherent. Uh-huh. Its time has passed. Oh. Okay, two, two sentences. I'm on board. Its flaws are inherent. Its time has passed. Right. Now, if you were looking at this subheading, if you saw it in front of you, you would see there's no apostrophe in the word it's in the sentence, its flaws are inherent. And that's correct. Right. That's the way uh, life was intended to be. But if you looked at the second sentence, its time has passed, they did stick an apostrophe in the word oh it's. God. And that's wrong. There is no apostrophe. Whenever you have the word it's, I-T-S, if it means it is, if it's the contraction it is, then you put the apostrophe in. But if it's its time has passed, you don't. Now, I know I'm overreacting, and this is a pet <laughs> peeve of mine, but, you know, it, I, the reason I care so much, first, is that the New York Times shouldn't be making a, a mistake like this. They're the paper of record and so on. But I think it's also a sign and a symptom and a symbol of the fact that as a society and a culture, maybe fueled by the use of the Internet, with its links and its addresses that don't permit little things like apostrophes and commas and so on, hmm. you know, you're lucky to get a dash in there. Uh, I think it shows that we're not following rules and conventions. And and people may say, who cares? What's so great about these rules? Take spelling, for example. You know, if somebody misspells a word nowadays, what's the big deal? Everybody knows what he means. I think it is a big deal because, again, these are little symbols of, of quality. They may be small, but they relate to Something that is important, namely quality. There aren't any spelling bees any I'm enraged, longer. by the way, that you that you led in with this uh, federal death penalty thing that we don't get to talk about now. I'm uh, totally on board to talk about grammatical formalism right now. Let's let's yeah, go. let's, let's do go. that. Let's go to the so mat you think, on that. Think I'm overreacting? Absolutely. Grammatic 
they call it grammatical formalism, the yeah. idea that we're uh, that, that, that you mean the, being right. The, the rules are very important, um, uh, specifically about grammar uh, and that they shouldn't change uh, in the same way. Uh, a I, lot ain't, of people, I ain't going to agree with you. Uh, I'm sorry. A lot, a lot of people were upset about the, the, the Merriam-Webster dictionary or the Oxford English or whatever, adding uh, a new definition of literally to mean figuratively because people used it that way and you know what oh i was upset yeah i mean they gave in to sloppy language is use. it sloppy? Well, a lot of folks use literally and figuratively the same they kind of just want to maybe there's an emphasis i guess we'll stick that in the dictionary because no. what are we and if if nothing else we should just reflect the attitudes and how well, about that's, reflecting what's correct well, that's the and problem. if somebody makes a mistake call them out on well, it that that's the problem the question is what is the role of of the Oxford English Dictionary or Merriam-Webster or, or whatever else, or what is the role of any institution that in any way, you know, the New York Times, the Gray Lady versus uh, the Wall Street Journal versus the uh, OED uh, or, you know, a big publishing house or whatever else. Is it their job to be prescriptive about what the rules for communication in the English language are? They say, I am God, when it comes to grammar, and I tell you what grammar is because it is it is what it has been for the last ten years, twenty years, fifty years, a hundred years. Well, guess what? Grammar has changed a lot. Or yeah, in we don't say years. and we don't say thee and thou anymore. Right. So certainly things change. And at a certain point, people stop saying thou. But if you have certain rules that everybody acknowledges as as the correct version uh, in terms of English grammar rules. Then if somebody blows it and makes a mistake, wh why not object to it and call them on it as opposed to saying, well, so many people are making that mistake now, then I guess we're going to just put well, up with it. I think there's a big difference between a typo that is clearly a typo and nobody intended to change the usage of its. And it maybe you can say that it's a failing of one of these institutions. I canceled my subscription to The but New York Times. I think it's not that it's is not a big deal to have uh, made a mistake about. It's not. But if, if it, even if you want to say that it is a big deal, the reason that it is a big deal is because the gray lady is the paper of record, because it is a prescriptive, uh, dogmatic representation of rightness, not as to facts, but about the rules about how we communicate. And OED and Merriam-Webster and all the others are actually pretty good about saying, actually, we don't tell you what grammar is or what words are. We have to change with the times. The French government is a great example. The French government is very, uh, very focused on the French language. Oh, yeah. They don't want you to uh, mix in English neologisms, new words uh, that, uh, you know, the word like le internet. They don't like They're le very internet. very proud of their language. They want, uh, when, when le internet came into common usage, the government said it is you know, it, it is not allowed publishers, newspapers, the rest, dictionaries, not allowed to put le internet into your dictionaries. Instead, you have to use some long French phrase that was like le series of interconnected tubes uh, <laughs> over the uh, over the computers or something like that. And it's completely ridiculous and, and wordy and, and, and impossible and no one ever uses it. And as a result, of course, everyone just used le internet. Now, maybe they should have come up with a shorter, pithier word, but even that, it doesn't really matter. What matters is whether we have some big brother telling us, uh, you know, institutions 
sentence telling us how we should talk, how we should communicate, and what's right and what's wrong in terms of grammatical formalism, or whether it's this grassroots thing and our institutions reflect us uh, like a mirror back downward. And I'm much more in the camp that, as I would say a libertarian would probably agree, it's not about these big institutions and what they think and what them holding, maintaining the status quo. It's about individuals communicating the way that works for them and is best. And in the same way, you have all of these, uh, you know, arguments about, well, I can't use they as a singular pronoun because uh, it, it, it is unclear and, and uh, I, I, I don't want to, you know, uh, allow people who are non-binary to use, the fra- to use the pronoun they instead of he or her. They have to pick one and be either he or her. Uh, and, and I also won't, uh, you know, cotton to any sort of new uh, fangled pronoun that mixes the both that's like sure or shim or something like that to, to, to c- c- combine two because I won't have any new words in my language. I won't have any new rules. And uh, anything that rocks the boat and changes the status quo is bad and wrong. That's, I think, the wrong way to approach gr- grammar and, and language and talking, which is the, the conduit, the medium we all use to change the world. And I think that changes in language actually reflect uh, you know, public attitudes in a really good way, and language should evolve and change. Now, but is this you, a typo? When yeah, you this is speak a typo. and when you write, you uh, try your best, I think, to uh, make sure that you follow the rules of grammar and you spell things correctly and so I do. on. So why do you do that if not the, for the fact that you are proud of the fact that you know the rules and you, you respect the rules and yeah. you want everybody to know, you know that, that you are, are somebody who uh, understands you know, I do the it. correct version? I, I do it, and I, I think doing it is, uh, uh, is important because um, I want people to like me and respect me and people who you know, see me, hear me using the wrong words might think less of me or something. Um, but I know that it also is a reflection of, for a lot of people, it's a reflection of elitism. It is when, especially I and me is a great example. I is the subject of a sentence. Me is the object of a sentence. So you say, I went to the store. You don't say me went to the store. But the one that gets confused is when you say, my dad and me went to the store, which is wrong. You should say, my dad and I yeah, went Because you're both store. subjects. Because we're both the subjects of the sentence. But if you instead turn that around uh, and... Um, so you say, uh, my sister gave a present to my dad and I. That's wrong. It's my gave but a, a lot of people use the word I me. because they think it sounds correct right, and fancy. Exactly. Uh, and that that sort of a distinction, um, it I think you would agree, being a student of Dale Carnegie, uh, that you would never, ever, ever, ever correct anyone you know or meet, a friend, a colleague, uh, a business partner, anybody, a random person on the street, if they use the wrong I Unless I wanted to piss them off. Right, exactly. Uh, You would never correct their incorrect usage of I or me, subject and object, because it would make them feel bad. And why would it make (laughs) them feel bad? And you'd be a jerk. (laughs) Yeah, because the grammatical formalism, the idea that there's a rightness and a wrongness and people have to know and use the right one, and you have to be informed of your typos and you should feel bad for your typos. Now, it's the New York Times. They don't feel bad. It isn't a matter of formalism. Because what Dale Carnegie also says that it, is that if you're at a dinner party right. and somebody says, you know, uh, the capital of uh, South Dakota is uh, Bismarck, and you know it's Pierre, not Bismarck, <laughs> you would not. <laughs> Which cor- I do, of course. You would not correct them. <laughs> right. You Never. would not pipe up and say, "Oh, you excuse know, me, push up my glasses stop at the bridge." Stop eating your your <laughs> soup me. and listen to me. 
Yeah, so it, is, it isn't the matter of, well, these are the rules. I'm going to fussily abide by the rules. It's just a matter of right and wrong. Right. And, and Dale Carnegie would preach, don't correct them. He's just going to tick them off. What's the point? You're right. You are just going to tick them off. And the reason you're going to tick them off is because correcting somebody on their grammar, uh, this idea of grammar, which is an extension of grammatical formalism, a rude extension of it, but it is a manifestation of it. It, it, it can be a way to put somebody down. It could be a way to show that you're smarter or better educated than they are. And it can be mean. And you, for all those reasons, you don't do it because you know that's all baked in there. Like, what? How, why are they going to feel bad if I correct them? They're not going to feel bad because they used the wrong word in a vacuum. They're going to feel bad because they used the wrong word because you're a fancy lawyer and you're smart and you always use the right words. And it doesn't matter if they're a doctor uh, and they think they're better educated than you in that respect. They're still going to feel like, wow, Royal thinks that in his sphere of word world, he's smarter or better than I am. And even if it's unjustified for them to feel that way and they know you respect them and you like them, they're still going to feel that, oh, I don't love it. Imagine talking to anyone like, I don't know, the reader of a newspaper or the person on the internet who reads uh, your comment or, or whatever else who doesn't know who you are and thinks you, this person's saying he's better than. And in the same way that you don't want to alienate people uh, who listened to Rush Limbaugh in the 90s, uh, but who kind of now are like, well, maybe he was too mean or whatever. You, you, you can probably also see how, you know, somebody, even though they might be wrong about politics, uh, you don't want to alienate them. You don't want to be mean to them. And it would be elitist to go off on some rant about how wrong uh, Rush Limbaugh was about everything. Um, and it's going to really turn people off and, and turn people away from your political message. And that is the same idea with grammatical formalism, that you're going to really turn people off. You're going to, you know, enshrine this, this idea of uh, people who have better educations are better than and people who don't are worse than. And instead, the idea should be the language should be constantly evolving. And even though, you know, we can, you know, correct typos, right? The New York Times should not have used it's twice in a single sentence and you, uh, in the same two context, sentences, right. two sentences, uh, and, and used the two different forms of it. Come on, guys. It's right there. Like, come on. And it's also Microsoft Word does that. It gets the context and fixes it for you. OK, and you might not use Word. I don't know what the heck else you would use. But come on, guys, you should have gotten that right. But the idea of being, you know, uh, a, a grammatical formalist, that's why I don't prescribe. And that's why I would never correct anybody. And that's why when people use stuff and want to change the English language, I think often for the better yeah go for it why not man it's all weekly we're making up what's right and wrong baby just do what you want it's 2021 so you're not going to correct people but but you'll serve as a role model oh i'd like to yeah, there you yeah. go well ladies and gentlemen we got through a lot of great topics uh, today. mostly ted cruz uh, yeah well ted ted was up there so was rush mm -hmm. uh, so was the big apostrophe mm -hmm. have yourself <laughs> a great week we'll see you next time on too many lawyers